Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. In today's podcast, we've got a really, really exciting uh, show lined up. We've got James Carter, who's a, an expert on uh, mobility, future mobility and electrification. Uh, James is based in Canada. He's really uh, been in the automotive industry for many, many years, um, and he's a real expert in terms of future mobility. Uh, James and I had the opportunity to have about uh, about an hour. Uh, to be honest, we could have gone all, on all day talking about everything from electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, electric trucks, buses. It's fascinating, really fascinating conversation, really interesting to hear what James had to say and what's happening over in Canada. So without further ado, we'll go to today's podcast. Okay, so today um, is really exciting for me. Uh, I've got the opportunity to talk to uh, someone called James Carter, who's based in Canada. Um, I'm sitting in Europe. James is in Canada. So provided all the technology works, um, we're going to have a, a discussion about what's happening in transportation, about what's happening in Canada and Europe with electrification and automation and smart cities and all sorts of uh, really interesting stuff. So James, um, could could you just tell me and um, and the podcast who who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, for sure. Firstly, Ryan, thanks very much for having me here today. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, uh, you know, wonderful to be talking about you know future mobility with you. So so that's great. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So, uh, firstly, a little bit about myself. So, I worked for uh, Toyota across uh, several different places for nineteen years, uh, Australia. Uh, in Japan and then uh, in Canada for uh, between 2005 and uh, 2015. So uh, my background is a long career in sales and uh, marketing and operations with a, an OEM. And you know this is a, the sort of experience that you you, you gain a real you know transport. Um, background into to manufacturing to how sales and marketing works and how you know uh, automotive applies to the world. And when I left in 2015, it was really interesting because, you know, I, I started to find that as we moved into this new uh, concept of, you know, what we might call new mobility, we saw all these ideas of uh, transportation, which in the past have become, have been really quite different uh, industries, uh, are really starting to come together, you know, whether that be uh, public transport or even cycling or even uh, trucking or all these other different sectors are really becoming part of this one big transportation uh, melting pot as well, almost like a super industry. So that, that's for me what really makes this uh, industry so so fascinating. And, and when I left Toyota, I, I started my own uh, consulting company called uh, Vision Mobility. And what we do is we have three uh, core areas uh, within the business. Firstly, uh, we do uh, speaking and consulting. So that would be going to different companies and advising them about what new mobility looks like, uh, what is going to be the impact on their company in the future. So what we've found is when we've we've gone to different organizations, we've found that mobility touches 
almost every organization. So we can go through and understand how this idea of future transport will start impacting them personally, whether that's uh, in the automotive aftermarket, who I did a lot of work with this year, or whether that's in new construction of uh, uh, large-scale uh, land developments. So, right, right. so the, the idea of how autonomous or how electric will affect them is quite profound. Yeah, it's huge changes coming, isn't there? I mean, the aftermarket is totally. going to be very disrupted by electrification and and autonomy. Uh, yeah, massive changes there, and city planning, town planning, even even some of the simple stuff. I've, we f- we find over here there's kind of at the, that planning level and and cities and kind of builders. It seems what seems obvious to people in the space. It's still a, a long way away. Is it the same in in Canada or? or yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's that's one thing that we'll, you know, certainly discuss with different companies that we're consulting with. Uh, perhaps the other big one that I should mention, uh, you know, is dealers. And uh, the way I think that we'll buy, buy our mobility in the future is going to change quite dramatically from the way we purchase a vehicle today. So going to different dealer groups and speaking of that subject to dealers about how their business will change over the next 10 or 15 years uh, is certainly something that has affected not just Canada or the US, but or will affect Europe and, and other countries as well. So that's the first part of the business. The second part is um, research. We I partner with uh, um, Curiosity CX uh, and Dave Fish down there. We do the annual mobility study. Uh, we're coming up on the third uh, annual revision this year. And uh, we also partner with um, Michigan State University. And this year we've also partnered with um, LEK Consulting, which is a big uh, consulting group, global consulting group as well as part of that. And the third part of the work that we do is uh, assisting startups for you know finding new business opportunities and a connection to automotive as well oh wow that sounds um that sounds really exciting so you've got um very broad spread of activity there yeah there's lots going on i tell you (laughs) and i guess um in the last couple of years it's 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 changed massively in europe you know the Basically, it's gone from kind of no no one being all that interested in electrification, and certainly not really that many people talking about autonomy, to now right. you know not a day literally not a day goes by without uh, a new kind of massive EV launch, some big you know a thousand new charges being installed somewhere and mm-hmm. uh, stuff. What 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 is it like in Canada at the moment? Is it um, what's happening on the ground? Uh, certainly, certainly the same sort of thing is happening uh, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, in Canada, I guess, is part of the global, not global, but, you know, the regional North America area. Uh, so, you know, we see uh, we see a lot of connection down to the U.S. and on, you know, what's happening with future mobility. But, but in particular for Canada, uh, we're seeing, and in particular Toronto even, we're really seeing some real growth in some really important um, industries that are a part of that. We've seen uh, Uber invest large amounts of money into Toronto uh, with to develop AI, which goes into developing their um, autonomous development. Uh, we see GM operating their um, autonomous uh, research centre just north of Toronto in Markham, uh, and they've partnered uh, as part of their cruise development uh, with that as well. Uh, we're seeing uh, universities, especially such as uh, University of Waterloo, about an hour's west of Toronto, uh, who've actually developed and now testing their own autonomous vehicle, which, interestingly enough, they've named Autonomous. 
<laughs> okay, right. And Which I found quite funny. <laughs> is that is that because of the Canadian thing, or is it correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay, so, so the large animal rather than the uh, frothed milk-based dessert. Correct. Yeah. Well, that, yes, that would be kind of a moose would be would be funny. And yes. <laughs> um, and the, the last one I think that's really interesting is the FOD and uh, tie up with BlackBerry, which um, uh, with QNX too, which is QNX is already a, a world leader in uh, security and uh, automotive protocols uh, throughout the world. I believe 60 or 70 percent of vehicles today have QNX protocols somewhere embedded in, in vehicles. Uh, and um, FOD is uh, partnering their autonomous development with them. Oh wow! So, so the, in, in terms of autonomy, there's really absolutely tons of stuff going on in Canada at the moment. And, and I guess absolutely. is that all quite visible, um, or is it kind of stuff happening off on test tracks and things? Or, or can you will you actually go out sort of downtown and see um, autonomous vehicles kind of uh, rolling around with people sitting behind the wheel? No, it's it's still you know it's still small scale yet. It's still happening. Uh, it's it's not you know it's certainly not open the out out in the open. There's not necessarily any say shuttles that that we've seen um, open that are uh, fully autonomous yet. But you know I think that's only a matter of time before that will happen. Uh, I think um, you know the the other thing about Toronto and, and Canada in particular is the proximity to uh, some of the big uh, development centres within the U.S., such as yeah. particularly uh, Michigan. Uh, which is a big hub of automotive in the U.S., and again, not too far from other U.S. Uh, technology-leading areas such as Boston, which yeah. is, you know, a robotics uh, pioneer. So. Yeah, Canada's always been um, – I've always kind of envied Canada with the science and engineering base there. There's very right. – um, lots and lots of science and engineering stuff happens in Canada, doesn't right. it, Conne and connected okay. down into North America. Right. Is it – And uh, with perhaps – uh, I want to stay away from politics, but one of the things that Canada is seeing is the attraction of new, uh, many new different um, uh, engineers and you know development experts in you know forward new technology who haven't been able to go to the U.S. Um, due to the new political climate there. So right. we're seeing a huge influx of people and a, and a, <laughs> a real growth of, uh, I, I guess brain-driven community in, in <laughs> particularly in Toronto which is very encouraging for us that's fantastic that is you know it's, it's obviously you know politics this side are not very stable either at the moment and right uh, as as I mean my business is in the engineering space and electrification and, and really recruiting and retaining good talent excellent talent is is one of the most difficult things that we are faced with and uh, you know you just wish you could shake the politicians and say you know you got to you got to make this place attractive for people globally to come to you want right. the best and the brightest here and uh, they just don't seem to get it you know right uh, <laughs> and the places that do it well you know well you know best to look to best to look to toronto um and canada is it yeah it's been a real positive at the kind of political level at the government level is there um, much discussion about you know the need the changes that are needed to the regulations to allow autonomous vehicles to run on the road in Canada is that a big topic or is it just kind of sort of happening in the background 
Yeah, no, totally. There's lots going on uh, with that, both at the provincial level in Ontario, where I am, uh, which is Toronto, uh, and also at the federal level. So uh, the federal federal government and the Senate actually ran a very big inquiry that was released last year about what are the future impacts of new mobility, particularly autonomous, and started to identify different sectors of the economy that would both benefit strongly uh, and both ones that would be impacted negatively. Uh, and uh, the I know the automotive aftermarket was contributing as part of that, saying, hey, you know, we want to be part of this. We want to make sure that, you know, there's communication protocols from OEMs that don't lock us out and et cetera. So th- there's, there's definitely going to be some big uh positive impacts and there's going to be some big negative impacts too on the future of mobility however i think you know if we step back you know and look at look at new mobility and new technology from a 30,000 foot view what we find is that new technology always generates more economic value more jobs more uh Economic goodness, for want of a better <laughs> a better phrase, you know, we've yeah. seen that with computing, how computing uh, and new and technology surrounding that, and and the internet has done away with some jobs, yeah. but has add, added so many more. It, and it goes right back to you know um, the transition from horses to cars, where you know blacksmiths and you know uh, stable owners or stable keepers were suddenly out of a job but you suddenly find this whole new industry grew around automotive and that's exactly what's going to happen with with uh, autonomous and new mobility yeah it's interesting i mean a lot of people can relate very quickly to things like oh you know truck drivers or taxi drivers but then the flip is always that Actually, there's there's a big problem recruiting people into those professions like truck driving, yeah. um, particularly I think globally there's there's um, there's issues with that, and and it's not a great profession either, you know. And um, I guess it's probably an easier job in the UK than it is in Canada. If um, mm-hmm. sort of good uh, TV programs about those uh, the the trucks that kind of run up and down <laughs> into the the cold icy places, but it's it's kind of da- difficult dangerous fairly low paid work and um you kind of you can see people moving out of that as as vehicles are automated but then there's this sort of skills shortages across a lot of um a lot of the rest of the economy we've got an aging population so yeah should should be a benefit but then uh, where people don't kind of tend to see um things like the aftermarket where you've got you know Things like body repairs, you know, mm-hmm. if, if we're not having car accidents as often, um, it's going to put pressure on body repair shops. If you're not kind of um, bumping the curb when you shouldn't be and knocking tires off, it's going to reduce uh, sales of tires and, and, and that kind of thing. So there's a huge oh, kind of lots of ripple out kind of areas behind the scenes that are going to be impacted. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly on the consulting side of my business, it's it's about going to those different, different, you know, organizations that are connected in some way to transportation and saying, hey, your business is going to be impacted. Think about carefully how what's going to happen. Think about carefully how what might happen uh, might, you know, roll out to you in the future. And certainly, Dealers are the ones that are, to me, are the big impacts because there are three main streams of uh, revenue being uh, sales, being parts, being services, all impacted in some way by new mobility. Mm. And do you find your 
I mean, obviously they're, they're hiring you, so there's there's clearly some level of interest. But is it is it a, is it a difficult sell to to convince people they need to be taking it seriously, or has it changed in the last couple of years? Are people more interested or less interested now? What's the the general kind of feeling you get? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know what? I um I wrote this article probably about two and a half years ago, and I entitled it. Um, own a dealership, sell it now. And it was a provocative title um, because <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to be provocative to, to like get people to think about how mobility starts to uh, impact their dealership. And, and of course, you, you start to see what I, I call these three distinct groups within in dealers. You know, firstly, there's the group that, you know, they get it. They understand that change is coming. They start reading about uh, autonomous. They start reading about electrification in, in even their dealer magazines. And they say, well, you know what, this could really impact my business in some ways. I'm, I'm not quite sure how it will, but I imagine it will. And then there's this group that said, we'll say, um, we've been around for 100 years. There's no way that people are ever going to stop buying cars. <laughs> people are ridiculous. You know, yeah. it's just it's just not going to change. My great-grandfather had my dealership. It's not going to change. <laughs> so those people, it's you can't tell them anything. So it's hard to really <laughs> communicate. Like, Yeah. They're making money now. They don't really care too much about what's coming down the road. And then there's this group in the middle, uh, and it's probably 70 to 80% of dealers out there, and they really are just focused on what they're doing today. They're running their operation, and they haven't really even considered at a, at a macro level what the coming change of mobility uh, might do for their business in the future, how it might impact them, what the opportunities, what's the things that they need to avoid. So, you know, it's it's that group that I, I really need to, that I really communicate to and try to say, hey, stop. Don't think about your targets for the next half an hour or hour. Don't think about, you know, your uh, your quarterly profitability. Think about what your profitability is going to be like in 10 or 15 or 20 years' time. Think about where your business is going in the long-term future and what are these macro trends that will really start to hit your business hard. Yeah, and these are big businesses as well, aren't they? I mean, there's there's a sort of um, – in the U.S. and Canada, you, 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 you tend towards quite large dealership, even a small dealership in uh, – and your side of the the water is a big it's a big company lots of employees lots totally. of revenue yeah they can be and uh you know i even in north america north america is still a little bit more fragmented in te- terms of dealer groups compared to the uk or europe uh but still you're right these are these are guys who own companies that employ quite a few people, even if they're just a single point dealer, they have a lot of revenue, as you mentioned. And, and traditionally, that profitability, particularly in North America, has been pretty damn good. Yeah. So uh, they've been, some of them have been living the high life for a while. And, uh, you know, the potential that could come crashing down is, is not unreasonable. One of the big areas that, that I say to dealers is be careful about where you're putting your capital, where you're investing, how much money are you throwing at this dealership in the future. You know, you're going to take, you're going to take 20 years to pay off this new, uh, you know, glass palace, but mm. is it still going to be profitable in 10 or 15 years' time? 
I've, I've heard people talking about be, being quite deliberate with new investments to make sure that it's got the, like if they're putting a new dealership in, that it's almost built from spec at the start to be easy to convert into something else or to have space that they can give over to exactly. um, to something else, like meaning at a real simple level, things like cafes or um, kind of trying to get more sort of social engagement with Getting people to come through the door for reasons other than just to kick the tires of cars. Absolutely right. That's that's one of the areas that I recommend uh, to dealers, making sure that their uh, facility that they're building is is designed to be flexible for the future. Yeah, it's uh, it, is, is is the electrification starting to impact um, the the market much over there? I mean, obviously you've got Tesla selling products, and that they they have a, a, a no dealership model. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the new EVs coming in the market, uh, they're planning to do sort of direct sales model. Is um, Are you seeing much happening with electrification, driving what's happening in the marketplace yet? Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, electrification, the growth of uh, electric vehicle sales is certainly on, on doing very well here in uh, Canada. A lot of that just recently has been driven by the success of uh, the Tesla Model 3, mm-hmm. uh, which has sold extremely well. Uh, I would say that if you look at across provincially, there are s- some provinces that have been doing very well, and there's some that's going to have some challenges. Yeah. Uh, if you take, you know, the three big ones being uh, Quebec, uh, where Montreal is, British Columbia, which is where Vancouver is, and then then uh, Ontario, where Toronto is, mm. uh, generally they've been doing very well. Uh, they've in the in, up till now they've had. Uh, very strong backing from the government with some strong incentives, some government incentives to help people make the jump into an electrified vehicle. And, you know, we're seeing very solid market growth. The big problem right now is Ontario, where um, a new conservative, populist conservative government has uh, taken over and they've rolled back all the uh, climate change initiatives, including uh, EV subsidies, including uh, carbon tax policies that the previous government had, which is obviously having a, a detrimental effect on uh, EV sales and then, you know, from the last couple of months on, which is a real shame, frankly. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if that kind of flattens the demand or if, if we're now... You know, it, it feels like we might have gone through the tipping point, maybe that, you know, the, the, the sort of the subsidies in some cases are, were, were really important to get up and running, but they're, they're becoming less so as the quality of the products coming on the market and the, is better and the costs are coming down and things like that. Yeah. I, w- I would argue that there's still a strong need for subsidies. Uh, right. You know, when I, when I do the numbers compared to a, um, a, a, a normal traditional IC uh, engine vehicle certainly on the upfront costs it's harder to get into an EV than it's um, than it is in into a, um, a an IC vehicle and I, there's there's two problems that really start to become evident one is the high upfront cost yeah. uh, and the second is uh, up until now we've seen the resale value on ECs but uh, EVs being relatively poor yeah so you know like first generation Nissan Leaf, uh, BMW i3, uh, some others actually made that had very very high depreciation. So in fact, after three years, the value of that vehicle was perhaps only 20% of its 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 new value. So it meant that being able to lease that vehicle meant for exceptionally high lease payments, which which was a big barrier. One of the the examples that I uh, I, I saw was um, the uh, Chevrolet Volt. Uh, sorry, not the Volt, the Bolt. 
the, the full length EV, yeah. which had uh, lease payments which were actually significantly higher than a base BMW 5 Series. So it, it really made it tricky wow. for the average person to really be able to jump into a, an EV, even if they were just looking for, um, you know, low-cost, cheap mobility, it, yeah. it became difficult. So that's why I would argue that subsidies are still needed. And, and my forecasters are probably still needed for the next, you know, three to yeah. five years. The um, we're seeing those aftermarket uh, prices go up um, mm -hmm. over here. The, the I think as people are starting to understand a little bit more, and the you know it's it's all a fear thing. You're scared about the battery oh, replacement costs. And, Absolutely. But actually, we're kind of seeing well, you know what? The batteries aren't really uh, degrading that much over time. They're, they're still I fine. The the resale values actually uh, seem to be um, strengthening. If anything, yeah. over here. And I think that will occur over here as well, for sure. Yeah, and obviously the, the resales on Teslas are uh, still really strong. strong. <laughs> yeah, they are. yeah, it's quite they are. something, isn't it? Yeah, uh, you know, I think the other thing that we're seeing is, you know, Tesla's really caught the public imagination um, in, in terms that people who've got a little bit more money or a lot more money, they, they're actually they're actually going, well, you know, I want to play, play my part, you know, in, in my own belief that the environment is important. And I want to make sure that I don't, I can do what I can to reduce my emissions or to, you know, be as environmentally friendly or be as uh, concerned for my city with its air pollution as possible. Yeah. And, and those people start voting with their money and they're buying Teslas for that reason because they're captured by the brand and they're captured by the fact that they've got a great car that can really make a statement about what they believe in and who they are about. So I think that's one of the reasons that you're starting to see uh, people with more money start to to go towards Tesla. You know, Tesla Model S being the, the by far the number one uh, you know large luxury sedan in uh, both Canada and the U.S. and Model Three the number one uh, you know uh, I guess entry level luxury vehicle yeah. in both Canada and the U.S. It is a big. Um Something that we often talk about here is it, it very cost is cost is important for a lot of people when they're buying a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Like you can't get away from that for for a significant wow. chunk of the market. The cost is is important, but actually for another significant chunk of the market, it's not. They're buying for lots of other reasons. They're buying for brand exactly. values. They're buying for handling. They want the ultimate driving machine. Yep. They want the ultimate off roader. Um, there's all sorts of other reasons, and the, the the actually the sales of premium vehicles, which aren't the cheapest on the market, but they've got some other better attributes. Of uh, you know they're soaring globally. It's um, really the the premium SUV is where the money's yeah. at, not the Absolutely. not the Ford uh, Focus or the sort of small um, five door hatchback. Mm. Now I I will mention something that's extremely important about electric vehicles that you should be aware of, mm -hmm. uh, and that is. The, the cost of operation compared to an IC vehicle is always much lower. Uh, if you have a look at some of the IC, the uh, OEM spec sheets where they actually compare their IC vehicle versus uh, their um, EV equivalent, you'll see that they'll quote maintenance costs as around 50% lower than an IC vehicle. You don't need oil changes. Mm. Uh, you know, the energy costs that you're putting into the vehicle are much lower. So, you know, those things combined uh, really make 
the ownership of an EV once you're into it, you know, very, very cost effective. It's just that initial cost to get in that's been problematic. And what you've been finding on the heavy duty side of the equation, uh, you know, we've seen new electric buses come out from the likes of Proterra over here in North America, but also introductions like uh, the Sotaro by Mercedes-Benz just recently. There's a Volvo, there's a bunch of others, but uh, BID, of course, in China is a big one. But what we're seeing is that although the upfront cost to purchase that vehicle is much higher than a, a diesel, yeah. the maintenance cost on the ownership period is far, far better. So what you're seeing is is the sales guys on Proterra will come along and say, hey, uh, you know, I know my bus is much more expensive to buy initially, but if you consider over that lifetime 10 or 15 years of ownership, you're way ahead. So mm, yeah. buy our bus. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's that total customers getting smarter about the total cost of ownership, uh, right? And that's it's it's funny. I mean, even a couple of years ago, we've we've done a lot in the heavy duty market and buses and trucks and that kind of thing, and it was really difficult. The a lot of customers they sort of they were interested in the total cost of ownership, but they really they didn't they weren't sort of properly. Uh, it wasn't a real driver in their business. But the right. last kind of maybe three years, I would say, it's become. You know, everyone is so aware of the TCO of the vehicles and machines they're operating. Exactly. You know, and and it's it's such a big driver. And it's it. This is one of the the interesting little conundrums there because things like maintenance of ICE vehicles, for example, and particularly if you look at the heavy duty market, there is a massive shortage of skilled uh, technicians who can Absolutely. do heavy diesel maintenance, and that's driving up the cost of having service work or repair work done on uh, trucks and buses and, and heavy duty vehicles. So the you know the shortage of people to do it is making it more expensive to hire the people to get it done. Um, and it, and it, the gap's getting bigger all the time because with the, with the EVs, there's much less maintenance to be done. It's in, Generally, it's simpler um, or sort of swapping out units rather than kind of uh, getting into stripping engines down and that sort of thing. So... It, it's um, the gap is widening all the time, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Uh, and as the cost of battery technology uh, comes down, you know those those gaps will only just keep growing from here. And you know, certainly for most fleets, uh, you know, I, I saw one just on a, a little tangent here. I saw a, um, a large OEM who will go um, nameless right now saying that uh, you know uh, we we think that. Uh, there's a familiarity with owning an IC vehicle and that, you know, people won't buy buy our competitors' trucks and buses because they'll be familiar with what we offer. But the reality is that it, it's not about that for a fleet. A fleet is about, as you said, it's about TCO. It's about numbers on a spreadsheet. It's about what makes the lowest cost the most sense to operate for their business. And once those numbers start to flip towards EV, there's, you know, they just don't think like, oh, I love my IC. Yeah. <laughs> I'm familiar with it. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, it used to be a thing, didn't it? In, um, and I think it still is to a certain extent in, in, the, in the North American market. You get a truck that was built by Volvo, but it would have a Cummins engine in it. Right. And it had a Cummins engine because the operator ran Cummins engines and everything, and therefore every workshop had a stock of oil filters and exactly. you know, the diagnostic tool and et cetera, et cetera. So if, for the ICE engine, actually that familiarity is quite is, is more significant, but then if you don't need the oil filters and you don't need all of those other consumable spare parts sitting out in your workshops, it just sort of, it's a completely different way of, um, right. of operating, so right. it becomes less important to have, right. to have that. 
Well, I was actually um, talking just recently with a, a client who's a big logistics company, and they they were saying exactly the same thing. Was right now, you know, a, a, you know, across the world, they had different uh, vehicles in different uh, areas for different reasons, such as emissions, such as you know, size or whatever they need. But the problem with that is that there was a lot more complexity that they need to to get by and being able to run and maintain their vehicles. So, uh, what they very much looking forward to with electrification is the simplification of the maintenance and the simplification of running the fleet. You know, driving, pulling complexity out of their fleet operations is money in the bank for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no need to tie up uh, all those spare parts and cash in uh, materials and things in different workshops around the place. It's a, it's a big, it's a big, big driver. Of course, um, are you really starting to see electric um, kind of buses and trucks and things on the road in in Canada? It's still early. Uh, you know, we we do see hybrid buses quite mm. common, uh, but obviously that's still I see. Uh, we still we we are seeing uh, transit companies starting to do trials. Just recently, I know that uh, the Toyota Transit Commission, the TTC, uh, just purchased 30 electric buses. We've seen the same um, occur in uh, both Vancouver and also in, I believe, Saskatchewan. Uh, They actually bought some as well. So we're starting to see the initial stages of rollouts and trials and things like that happening. I I would say we're kind of half a step behind uh, the U.S., where a lot of the, the transit authorities in the U.S. have have completed those trials and are, are now actually, uh, you know, fully rolling out yeah. electric buses, particularly from Tro- uh, Proterra, which is a company that's U.S. company that's doing very well down there. Yeah, Ex Tesla guys. Yeah, they're ro- rolling uh, rolling out in kind of numbers of units now. Oh, big numbers, yeah. It's still, it's always we have these kind of the smaller you know, 15 here and 20 there in Europe, or maybe 100, 200. But the um, it kind of is dwarfed by the, um, you know, city of wherever in China rolling 10,000 out or 15,000 out. So it's a completely right. different scale of change um, going yes. on over there. Yeah. What's it like in um, around you in terms of public charging infrastructure? Is there, a, is there a sort of coherent strategy in Canada for public charging? Or is it, are you kind of, you know, you've got the Tesla stuff. That's they've done their thing, and and is there anything else? Is 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 there a, is there things happening with um, with recharging infrastructure? Yes, yeah, certainly there is. Uh, you know, there is there are government strategies out there to do it. My personal views, it's been a bit incoherent. Uh, I don't think perhaps the introduction of the new Conservative government here will at all help that um, strategy move forward. In uh, in Toronto here, but however, the there's been um, in Vancouver a much more consistent strategy and and, and rollout uh, of charges. Uh, however, uh, you know, as a, a friend of mine noted over there, uh, it, it's still somewhat inconsistent and somewhat bitsy and in, uh, not particularly well thought out, especially compared to the way the Tesla supercharger network's been rolled out. And I, that's actually a very consistent story not across yeah. not just across canada but you know across north america as a whole and how, how important do you think it is to have the charging infrastructure i mean it, it's sort of there's a debate there isn't there because the, now the batteries are getting bigger there's less need to to charge mm-hmm. as frequently um in normal use is it 
and and obviously the the thing that you guys have got in Canada is much higher proportion of um, off street parking um, mm-hmm. to the, to households than than we might have in Europe. So is it a big thing uh, that needs to be kind of tackled, or is it just one of those things that's going to kind of work itself out and it's not such a big deal? Well, I, I think that 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 is uh, you know a point that you mentioned is that yes, there are percentage wise, there's probably is higher amount of off street parking and you know household parking uh, where you can you know plug a, a, an electric vehicle in. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at the the core areas of especially Toronto and to a lesser extent Vancouver and um, Montreal, they're still space capped. It's still hard to find parking, especially in, you know, apartment buildings that can support uh, EVs. And, and that, you know, seriously is a challenge. So, you know, therefore, the the way that EVs roll out does need to have some sort of uh, strategy, you know, tied to it. Um, and it, it's almost tied to who who's actually serving. Do you have uh, appropriate connection at home to, to EV charging? And, uh, you know, I think that that's going to be one of the drivers that people have to think of going forward. And really, people need to have a, a, a convenient place on where they, they can charge. Like, you know, if you have a moderately fast charger that, say, reduces charge times down from six hours down to two, two is still a damn long time just to yeah. be sitting around. So it needs to be convenient to somewhere, to whether it's their house or whether that's their work or somewhere, yeah. they can get some juice into this vehicle. Because the, 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 the kind of... The the converged uh, Nirvana is the autonomous electric car that just takes itself away and is uh, charged up somewhere else. So you don't oh, have to worry about uh, off-street parking or anything like that. Totally. And, and, you know, that would be wonderful. And that'll drive a whole new set of, uh, you know, ownership and uh, usage models that, you know, um, you know the, the idea of the taxi bot. But I think the problem is until we get to that stage how do we you know rolling out that charging network to the people who really do need them so so that's that's the questions and and sometimes the the usage requirement on that is going to be a little bit person by person and individually based yeah. but the, the core of it is is that for electric ownership electric vehicle ownership to really work you need to have um easy and convenient accessibility to charging. Yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting. Is it interesting to see how this it's going to develop? And it, the the last um, there's been some big announcements on charging infrastructure with likes of uh, Charge Point, and then some investments by some of the bigger oil and gas companies. So I, I think there's over the next year or so there's going to be an awful lot of activity and new kind of. Um, rollouts of, of charges coming that maybe aren't as driven by government funding as they have been in the past might be more commercially driven um, yeah I think I think that's true um, but I think what's important to understand is that you know the role that the government plays is is really to understand who needs the charges where they need to be placed hmm. what are the uh, what are the connections to say that the substations they need? What are the connections to say by having extra vehicles in an area that's, you know, a commercial vehicle area or whatever? You know, those planning requirements that, you know, really form a, an important part of the way that we, uh, you know, live in our cities uh, and how our cities operate. That all that thing need, those things need to come together. But, but also to make sure that, uh, you know, 
people who are maybe less well off still have access to the services yeah. that they need. And, and that includes electric vehicle charging as well. And is, is this, um, when you're t- introducing yourself earlier and talking about what you did and the, the kind of consultancy mm-hmm. part of your business, is I guess this, it, it's that aspect of kind of providing advice to people planning large building projects and stuff about charging infrastructure and about this kind of thing is is that that's that must be quite a large part of um, of what you find yourself being asked for. Uh, um, you know, honestly, the, the different projects come and go, and so sometimes it can be very busy on that, and sometimes we're working on other things. Yeah. But however, you know, yes, it is. Uh, certainly, different companies will come along and say. But, but it, you know, what is the future of mobility? How will that impact on me on this brand new building that, that I'm building? Uh, but it's not just about, you know, understanding the electric, electric vehicle side, which is extremely important, yeah. uh, but also understanding the AV side as well. Um, because yeah. when you're planning for new buildings, those buildings there are going to be there for 50, 80 years or whatever the number might be. <laughs> a long time, yeah. You know, I mean, you go down to central London and those buildings have been around in many parts of the UK and those buildings have been around for hundreds, hundreds of years. So the point being is what they're planning for needs to be adaptable for an autonomous environment. And I think that's the key, one of the key things that they that really uh, land developers are starting to key in on message now about how, how does this really work for me? How does this this, this interact? So what's your, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by your, what's your take on where we're at with autonomy at the moment and when we're likely to start kind of really seeing it take a hold? Um, where, do, where do you think it's at? Yeah, so we, we actually do volume forecasting for both EVs and AVs as part of our our, our business and um, you know one of the things that we're forecasting is um, for, for general light vehicles uh, we we generally try to focus on level four and level five uh, autonomy because that's that's the real change point that's the real change where uh, a driver isn't needed uh, you know it can go most places under level four of course it's capped within a geographic area yeah. but it really does drive this this idea of this taxi bot, this vehicle coming along and picking you up and taking you wherever you need to go, and then next time you want transportation, it again happening. So to me, that's that's one of the key drivers. Our forecast uh, by 2030 is that we'll see in the range of 12 to 15 percent of all new vehicles sold um, having full autonomous you know, availability on light vehicles. That doesn't include uh, trucks, buses, uh, whatever. But we do see um, that it will take a little bit more to ramp up, um, a little bit more to get going. We see that the the average changeover for vehicles in in North America is, uh, you know, from from cradle to grave on average is is sort of in the the 12-year range and total life cycle range. So turning that fleet over does take time. Mm. And, you know, once we sort of multiply that into um, a forecast for AV, it will take a little bit. And do you look at as well the on the heavy market whether the sort of economic drivers are arguably stronger, or is is that a different yeah, picture? Yeah, totally. Um, you know that the on the heavy side, it, it's it's totally stronger. Uh, however, you know the the development you know does need to take place. It does need to make sure it's it's very you know, close to foolproof. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that 
you know, accidents can, you know, not just be avoided at the rate that they currently are, but, you know, much higher mm. uh, rates above that. So, and, you know, when you're talking heavy vehicles, any problem causes, you know, multiple destruction. Yeah, so there's some crazy statistics over here on, um, if you look at, you know, deaths on the road, unfortunately, the, the huge percentage of them are, are basically you know, but essentially, if you have an accident in a passenger car, where it's passenger car on passenger car collision these days, you know, you most times you're walking away uh, right. from that. You know, with a few bumps and bruises and cuts, but um, that's that's sort of it. Whereas um, commercial vehicle on passenger car um, collisions, the the statistics are not great in terms of no, the, uh, yeah, the sort totally. of mortality rates and things. So it's very, um, it's it's really it is really important to get it right. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, the technological roadblocks. Uh, I, I don't know. Do, do you do you see that there's still some big, significant technical roadblocks to overcome, or do you think it's all just about kind of testing and proving? Uh, that's a good question. Now, you know, I'm going to qualify myself here by saying I'm not at all a engineer, um, and so I can't speak to the exact uh technical problems that they have to overcome in detail however you know i think on on a mass point of view you know what we're seeing is uh the, the technology starting to get there we're seeing low speed uh, autonomy rolled out by various shuttle manufacturers like navia mm-hmm. uh the local motors ollie you know um in in UK you have Arigo as well, yeah. so th- there's a few that are really you know starting to make some really good low speed progress. I think without doubt the leader in this space uh, is recognised as Waymo. They're about to start commercial operations with uh, their Chrysler Pacificas, and they've already got a huge fleet of vehicles out there uh, right now. So you know without doubt autonomy is happening and it is going to be driven initially by that you know passenger uh shuttle market but obviously this technology will be uh, rolled into both you know heavy duty and and um vehicles that we might buy ourselves yeah it's it's in the the, the passenger shuttle does seem to be where the attention is at it's an interesting kind of you know that the, the impact that that then will have on things like scheduled public right. transport for example right. If, um, you know, people don't even like watching scheduled television anymore. <laughs> so the, the kind of concept that we still have to stand and wait at a bus stop, um, you know, you, you can see that with, it wouldn't take much to, uh, to have a, a sort of flexible on-demand offer right. that yep. uh, could beat that, you know. Right. Now, one of the big challenges that we see, um, certainly that it will still affect, you know, small shuttles, but very definitely will affect, uh, you know, uh, shared rides in passenger cars is, is the, the idea of trust. Mm. And uh, we talk a lot about that in our annual mobility studies. And we survey every year, uh, what does trust mean in sharing a ride? So we'll ask one of the questions that we ask is something like, um, would you would you ride share or would you carpool with a friend? So if you knew this person, they were a friend of yours, would you carpool them with them? Yeah. What we found was more than seventy percent, maybe even seventy five, eighty percent of people would say, yeah, absolutely, no problem at all. I would be at least somewhat interested in in doing that. Yeah. But as soon as we said, well, you know, what would you couple with a stranger, someone you don't know? It flips. Yeah. So suddenly, with that, we see 
around um, 60% of people, uh, actually, it's probably around 50% of people say, I would not be at all interested in um, in in car sharing or carpooling with someone I don't know. Yeah. There's this real trust barrier that's, that's involved in here. Um, and it's even more so with uh, women than men. The trust gap. On the on the female side is is much higher than on on the male side, and so you know there's this real barrier about people being quite um, you know they're, they're not sure about the sharing component at all, which opens up a whole yeah. uh, series of questions about you know potential future success of uh, you know shared mobility in in that respect and what can be done to overcome those things because obviously overcoming trust barriers with shared mobility has great flow on effects like you know yeah. lower vehicle density and things like that yeah there's some really interesting numbers around um even when people are getting on a, a regular bus at the moment mm-hmm. the, the the level of comfort they feel depending on the number of other passengers there are on the bus exactly and there's kind of a goldilocks effect of if there aren't very many passengers on the bus you then sort of feel quite vulnerable um, mm. and start to worry about what everyone else is doing and then if there's sort of just the right quantity everyone feels quite happy and then right. if it's overpacked um you know like the tube is at sometimes or buses in london yeah. you know then everyone feels quite uncomfortable again so <laughs> exactly. um, yeah it's definitely how we interact with each other and i've got to say one, one of my stuff i on, on on sort of an autonomous vehicle i know that I would probably rather pay to have my own um, autonomous transport than actually just the kind of idea of um, getting into something, you know, and going, let's say I'm going to go on a long journey uh, for three or four hours and I'm going to get some sleep in the car or whatever. Actually, I feel much more comfortable with that being my vehicle that's sort of got my germs in it and, you know, rather than kind of hailing something and then... Uh, I know I know some people who've been in car clubs where they've had some um, you know one of the big issues is the condition that people leave cars in in car clubs yeah. for the next person to come to and I can I can imagine it's possibly worse uh, the, you know basically the problem is people right that's the, you know. <laughs> that's, that's right I, I think that's one of the things that we're you know very much interested in is uh you know, the, the private versus shared mobility space, how that will grow and where that will grow. There's been a lot of focus on shared mobility, um, but I'm very, I am quite concerned about this trust component that comes through so regularly uh, in each of the studies that we do uh, on consumer behavior that sharing is, is has problems. It's this trust component. It's, the, it's this privacy component that you said. So, uh I think companies, as they move forward, need to be a little bit careful about jumping too far into the shared mobility equation because people just won't use it. Yeah. And if if they don't use it, then it's it's no good at all. So yeah, they definitely now, you've got to think really carefully about how it's deployed and uh, right. what the kind of um, what because I, I do think people get overexcited with the concept of oh well in in um, you know twenty years time no one's going to own a car. We'll just right. hail them on demand. That's it. You know, well, actually, I, I'm not so sure. You know, <laughs> we quite like our own space. A lot of, you know, it's if, if everyone just did mobility for the cheapest cost, then, yeah, you'd go to a shared ownership model. But actually, you know, there's plenty of people driving around in fancy, expensive cars because they, they like them. But you would, you'd pay a premium to get some time back, you know, that commuting time that you've got. 
um, if you if you got basically got your eyes back so you could do something else, you know, um, including sleep, probably by the way, um, <laughs> you know, there's some real value in that. So so how you use the space um, is is really important. And and if you if you had a, a vehicle that you you had to pay a premium for, but you could sleep in because you were the only person in it, or if you were then you know had to share with people who you didn't know there's there's lots of you know you, you wouldn't sit um on a packed bus with your computer out doing uh catching up on your emails you know or, or you're sort of careful about what you do so right there's um the, the, all those kind of interactions between people and 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 what's what the real point is it's not the race to the bottom in terms of what people value you know is it's 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 what they get out of the time time's the most important thing so you know, if it's cheap, that's one thing, but really it's the value that we attach to the time that we've got, isn't it? Right, right. yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, I think people make purchase considerations on their mobility, you know, surrounding several different things. It's not just the cost of ownership, but it's also about convenience. It's also about privacy. It's also about trust. Yeah, there's a bunch of things that uh people will make their decisions on it and really all of them need to come together to to make for a successful you know future mobility operation so what what's uh, what's then james what's the next kind of big thing for you what are you excited about happening next yeah i think to me to me uh i know we've already discussed it a little bit but i think the uh heavy duty electrification uh, sector is is something that's going to be absolutely enormous. We're just starting to see the change, you know, really flip on now. And I think, you know, the one thing that the Tesla Semi did is it drove the imagination and it drove the um, the idea that electrification of heavy duty really is possible. Mm, it's, yeah. uh, you know, and it, not just for, you know, 100 mile journeys but you know for 600 mile journeys really long range um really long range trucking really long range uh, vehicles and i think what you'll start to see is this rollout of uh infrastructure rollout of development to really support this uh idea of uh heavy duty uh, electrification uh you know one of the big things that i think we'll see is the introduction of ultra fast charging you know i think one of the fastest charges that we'll see today might be in the five to six hundred uh kilowatt range but we're seeing new groups within the us uh you know groups like um epri um groups like um charge it based in europe all coming together to start to determine what these standards for these ultra high um capacity electrification is and, and charging is and it, it's not just one megawatt these guys have got roadmaps right out to four megawatt charging. And, you know, four wow. megawatts is the equivalent <laughs> of, you know, 10,000 homes. It's it's crazy, yeah. you know, the numbers that they're thinking of. That's a big so, cable. <laughs> that is one hell of a big cable, yeah. yeah. But also thinking about what what's the charging infrastructure that you need to support that. Because yeah. when you think about, um, you know, a traditional charger that uh, has, has a cable, uh, you know, it has to be bendy and it has to be relatively light so a person can, you know, pick it up and uh, plug it into a vehicle. There's no way known to mankind that that's ever going to support one megawatt or three yeah. megawatts or whatever's going to be needed. It needs to be uh, something that um, 
is not hand operated, does not have human factors in it, and it needs to um, be able to figure out where the vehicle is and plug it in. So, you know, this this move towards uh, robotic technology and automation of the charger is, is something that I think is going to be very important. And of course, for that much charging capacity, they're going to need battery storage on the grid side of things as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the other component is how if you're just running a normal charger, then you start creating demand spikes, which become very expensive for the user. So uh, obviously the battery storage is then able to uh, equalize that load out. Well, on that, so in in heavy duty vehicles, one of the things that people are talking about is fuel cells. Where are you on fuel cells? So I, I think fuel cells, to me, hydrogen is problematic because the science just does not support a case as well as as pure electrification. If you consider uh, an ele- electric into a hydrogen storage medium and then electric out through a fuel cell mechanism, the, the losses in energy are, are quite high. So what the, you you only get about thirty percent in of what you would thirty percent out of what you initially get back in in that conversion process, and that energy wastage is is really not something that you know I, I think people are going to be particularly interested in. Uh, and to me, the definition of where hydrogen and fuel cells is going to be. Uh, acceptable basically depends on the at it will depend on the future access to electricity so if you're going somewhere that's remote or that there's certainly not a plug that's going to be available or convenient you know shipping aviation ultra long distance hauling in remote remote areas uh mining those sorts of things that they're the natural areas where hydrogen is is going to really play a much bigger role um, in in future um, mobility but as soon as you got somewhere that's got um, accessibility to a plug then you know things start to become a lot harder for hydrogen and i really believe that that tesla semi has really opened up the possibilities of electrification where fuel cells may have had um uh, may look to have had an advantage in the past yeah, yeah, it's uh, the art, the art of the possible. That we we do sometimes talk about the Tesla effect here, which um, we've right. definitely um, we've we've got a lot to thank them for. So it's, totally, uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's a really exciting time to be um, to be in our industry, isn't it? Absolutely, you know, it's a fascinating space. You know, uh, you know, I, I got into uh, started working for Toyota in 1996 because. You know, I loved cars and I loved the industry. But, you know, even in the, you know, 20 some years since then, the industry in the last five years has grown far more fascinating, far more interesting. And the development and the, the future changes is, is just far broader than I would have ever predicted 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think on that, um, we'll wrap it up because we've pretty much run to an hour. So it's been fascinating, James. I think we could continue all day, actually. But uh, thanks, <laughs> uh, thanks very much for, for, for taking the time to do this. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you. No problem, Ryan. Thanks very much for having me. It's been uh, great to talk to you and um, looking forward to talking to you again soon. Brilliant. Okay. Okay. Okay.
that's today's podcast thank you very much for listening it really really would mean the world to me if you could leave us a rating or hit like um, and, a, and a comment depending on which platform you're listening to us on don't forget to subscribe to the channel and also please you know if we brought any value to you at all please do share it with your friends um, the more listeners we get to this podcast the more people we can help uh, learn more about electrification and electric vehicle technology and how it works Okay, we'll be back soon with another podcast. Thank you.